I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are. We're giving everyone on the call a chance uh, to see maybe your view on why voting matters and how you've been involved and what that dialogue looks like. Uh, To do that, we're going to walk through, I guess we'll say three major bullet points. One, voter demographics, two, voter education, and three, ultimately, why it matters. And so the reason we had a poll, and this will be the end of me talking to everyone for the most part, but the reason we had a poll is we wanted to introduce this group with several voter statistics. And so I'm going to throw some high level numbers at you here, but um, roughly 90% of our demographic is from 26 to 36 that's on the call. And ultimately, in both 2012 and 2016 elections, uh, roughly 50% of the group on this call would have voted. And so let that sink in. Everybody oftentimes considers uh, who and why is being elected or what the topics at hand are and who's voting for for groups on this call. I think we have roughly 62 people on the call. That means 31 of this constituency would have voted. Obviously this group might be a little different, but broad brushstrokes, that's sort of what we're looking at. And the same thing was true. It's why we asked uh, what people's race or demographic background looks like. We had some other uh, statistics that were pulled just relative to recent trends in terms of background. And I'll pull these directly from North Carolina, Um, but White uh, educated voters voted roughly 80% of the time in 2016. Uh, Non-college educated voters roughly 60% of the time. Uh, African-American voters roughly 65% of the time. Latino roughly 50% of the time. And Asian or other races roughly 50% of the time. And so just wanted to give some backdrop to say that if voting matters, and 94% of you, I think, suggested that voting does matter, why is half of the millennial demographic represented uh, by our population not voting? And maybe we can get into that a little bit. Um, so uh, Tarek, Larkin, I think we'll probably just hop straight in. And, and Larkin, maybe I'll start with you. But are there any trends, particularly this year in 2020, that you're seeing relative to voter turnout or just voter engagement as it pertains to maybe demographics that are or aren't engaged? Anything that you've picked up on that might be new this year? I think it's going to be really hard to tell. Um, this year is so unlike any other election ever, uh, large in large part due to the pandemic. And so I think that the trends that we're seeing now, I'm not sure what picture they paint for the overall turnout and and who turns out and who doesn't. I've got to assume that uh, voter turnout will be the highest it's been in the last decade or two at least. But, um, you know, there's a lot of folks who over the last month or two have kind of been weighing their options about whether they felt comfortable voting in person, whether they wanted to mail in their ballots. Um, I think the patterns that we normally see of 
Democrats being the overwhelming majority of early votes, that shifted some. Uh, and I think in large part due to the fact that people probably feel like they're safer to get out during early voting when there's such a big window of, of time as opposed to trying to uh, be part of what might or might not end up being a large group of election day voters. So I know that's what I did. I know that's what a lot of my friends have done. Um, I think it's really hard to assume anything from the early voting data yet. And this will be more of a, a post-mortem analysis and we'll kind of have to wait and see what election day looks like. Sure. Tarek, you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I agree with all that for sure. I think two things I'm looking at very closely uh, is um, the accuracy of another presidential uh, cycle of polling. Um, because I think that one of the big things out of 2016 was just like a complete, like, you know, flipping on its head of the pollster industry and what they were telling us. And, you know, you can say one time is an accident, but it, I'm, I'm watching it to see, is it, I mean, we're hearing the same cycle again. So are they correct? Are they, have they learned some of their lessons of why the polls were so inaccurate in 2016? Or are we looking at a systemic problem, right? So I think that's one thing that it makes me kind of just, and I think a lot of people skeptical about what we're being told every day. I think that's also an issue with a lot of the media. I think there's a lot of local media um, that are doing really good work. And I think there's a lot of other types of media that it's just really brutally hard to turn on right now, whether you're on one side of the aisle or the other, because you feel like you're listening to a for-profit entity that is simply trying to analyze your demographics and get you to click or watch, which is in fact what they're doing. So I think the polls and, and the media's per, uh, you know, portrayal of all that is one thing I'm watching. I think the other thing and I think the, the problem that exists that I, I've only learned one thing in my time in politics, which is <laughs> what, what it feels like inside your echo chamber is not necessarily what is going on more broadly and holistically. Um, and that applies to, you know, social media, you know, I've come to learn like, oh my gosh, I'm getting, you know, barraged by 50, 75 people. You know, there's over 800,000 people. So, and, and that's just in our city. So, um, so I'm, I'm, part of me feels like the youth, particularly um, those not as heavily represented on this call under 26, um, but we know there's, there's more of them than over 37. Um, I, it, it feels to me like they're all gonna vote Democrat, <laughs> but we live in a top 20 size city. And I don't know what the more, what the vibe is with the more rural parts of our own state in our country. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing um, how the youth, um, particularly under, under 25, particularly 18 to 25, really first time voters, is it what all the, all the kind of data points are telling me it's going to be and my echo chamber is saying, or is it something different? So that's just two data points I'm paying particular attention to. I'm sure Larkin has something irrelevant to add to that. I think both of the things are true. I think there were huge blind spots in the polling in 2016. I think some of that has been identified and corrected. And at the same time, I believe that Donald Trump's support is just really hard to quantify because it's, it's such an unusual coalition. Uh, I think there's some people who I've heard him referred to this week as shy Trump voters that, that don't admit that they're going to vote for Trump. And then I think it's a lot of people who historically probably have not been active voters um, so it's just hard to poll. And I, I think that I'm skeptical of the certainty with which many people are reporting 
uh, like they did in 2016, and I believed it in 2016, uh, that Joe Biden is going to win this thing running away. I don't think that's true. I think he certainly um, has a good chance to win, maybe a, a better than 50-50 chance to win, but I'm not taking anything for granted as a Democrat. And if you want to know the other thing Tarek learned since he's been in politics, I put it in the chat. <laughs> I, I saw that. And I'm glad you brought it up, Larkin. That's a good segue because I, I forgot to mention to everybody on the call. But uh, do us a favor. If you have questions, there will be a Q&A portion of this thing. But if you have questions that come up as the conversation is ongoing, um, Sharice Walker is a host of this meeting. If you could send her a private chat with any questions that you, that you might have, we would love to, to talk to any of those at the end of the meeting. Like so, what's my favorite liberal bar in town? I'm willing to, to go into those level of details if you ex want. Ex exactly. Tarek, I was going to ask you that after the call. Uh, no, thank you. Thank you both for that. Appreciate that. Um, I'm curious, and I think you've probably covered this a little bit, but in your opinion, are there any recent noticeable shifts? And this is probably more for you guys locally than than on sort of a federal scale, uh, but recent shifts in groups or demographics that might be more or less involved in, in, in sort of the Charlotte-centric constituency? I, I don't know if I could say statistically, but I do feel like our generation, I mean, that poll said what the average person in here is like 25 to 40 or something. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah. I do feel like our generation or two generations that are sort of represented here are probably more active um, again, anecdotally, than I think they were a decade ago. And that's for a multitude of reasons, but I think it's a good thing. And I think you saw it in a sort of a splashy way on the city council in 2017, when you went from having no one under the age of 40 on city council to having six people elected at the same time, each for the first time under the age of 40. I think our generation, and it's reflected in everything from organizations like the Business Alliance to things like the city council to corporate boardrooms, I think our generation is starting to take the lead on a lot of those fronts. And we're just sort of at the beginning of that wave generationally. Um, and it's causing us to be more engaged civically and politically. And, and I think that's a good thing because I think our generation, this, this might be, um, this might be silly of me to believe, but I, I think our generation, maybe not this year, but going forward can start to close the gap back. Um, between what folks on the right and folks on the left think, because I think Republicans and Democrats in this general age group agree on a lot more things than maybe some of our, our parents and grandparents did. Um, you know, I think Tark and I have tried to demonstrate that on our podcast, but we see it a lot more than just there. And the more that our generation starts to take the reins, I think we can hopefully get some of the toxicity out of, of this process. Yeah. Well, I, I think part of that, Larkin, is when you're looking at, I think, all the way up to boomers and even the silent generation, I think voting is almost never above 70 percent of any demographic in terms of eligible voters. And so if the largest generation on the planet in the next four years is still only voting at 50 percent, if that number becomes 70 percent, it represents a, a massive change in terms of the weight of, of numbers. So I, I agree with you on that, Larkin. Anything to add, Tarek, before I hop yeah, I to mean, the next one? I, I would I would add that um, at, when you look at the last couple generations, e each one of them kind of activated as a as a group, as an entity, when their median age hit around 30, which is roughly give or take kind of where the millennial generation is right now. And by activated, I mean, you know, started to have a material takeover of 
you know, corporate America and small business and startups started to um, become more relevant decision-making um, groups in government and public service and civics and things like that. So, I mean, I, 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 you know, one of the problems with our generation is I think we have uniqueness, but we like to think we're special in every single way. And, and I will, I'm going to speak some truth for a minute and I'm going to speak in very broad brush terms. So clearly Larkin's like, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. But <laughs> I, I, I honestly believe this. And I believe I'm also painting with the broad brush. It does not cover everyone, but I think of kind of, you know, where we are. And if you were born between 1980 and 1996, with some exceptions, I think the, the, the boomer generation by and large has failed us in a material way. And I think when, when I think about how we were raised in comparison to how they were raised by the greatest generation and others and what they were trying to run away from, it, it, they inadvertently and in what they did overlaid three very critical things to what we're seeing as people are activating right now. One of which is the winner culture and you know everyone gets a participation trophy. And while that's great, there have been studies that have proven there are long-term effects. And what we're starting to see is some of those effects materialize as people start to activate locally, civically, in business. The second thing is, um, as it relates to uh, the perfection of the world that is presented via social media, everyone's sharing what their life looks like, only the perfect part, not the terrible parts. And, th and what that has done is it's made everyone feel inferior because they're like, well, my life is this. And like, but this, everything looks so perfect everywhere else. And the third is the on-demand world. And, you know, am I hungry? Postmates. Am I, do I need to go somewhere? Uber. Do I want to watch a movie? Stream it. You know, it's so everything is at your fingertips. Everything else looks perfect to you. And you're like, I win no matter what. All I do is win, 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 right? So <laughs> I think the problem becomes... Then this generation has now hit the workforce, hit the public sector, and they're like, wait a minute, this isn't what I was promised. Like, it's painful. Like, I'm spending a decade just kind of paying my dues, or I'm coming into city council to, to govern, and uh, I didn't get what I wanted, right? So I think that that is, uh, we're seeing, to back to, weaving back to what your question was, we're seeing them all engage. But I think there is a mighty struggle that was, is no fault of, of our own as a generation on the whole. It's just, we were brought up to, to see something differently. Well, anytime you can weave T-Pain lyrics into a philosophical discourse on politics, I'll support it. Um, so, yeah, so thank you for that. Well, thank you both for that. And I think we can shift, and this is, a, I think, an appropriate segue from sort of the demographic conversation to, to start to talk about the voter education conversation. And Tarek, this might have something to do with I think you said activation of voters at 30, even though there's voters that can vote for a long time before that. Um, so I think maybe, and, and I think you guys can probably both tell it without putting us to sleep, but maybe a really, a really brief civics lesson uh, on, on why voting matters at each level. And so a lot of people I think might be distracted when they're first time voters or maybe confused about what they have the opportunity to vote for, because it's not just a presidential election. It's a massive umbrella of things that affect our day-to-day -day lives. Do you guys want to tackle that re really briefly, if that's possible? I would just say, and we talk about this a lot, the, the fact of the matter is everybody wants to go out and vote for president because it's, it's the most high profile and everyone should do that. But at the same time, um, it's easy to feel like your vote doesn't count in a race that big. Although again, I'd point to 2016 in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and say, even there, your vote counts. Um, and in North Carolina, in a purple state, your vote counts on these on these national races and uh, and statewide races. 
when we when Tark and I got elected in 2017, one of the people that got elected with us was Justin Harlow, who is a good friend of both of ours and was a great council member, um, stepped away from from public service after one term to get back in to expanding his business. He washed out. It was too much for him. But <laughs> he won his election by 16 votes. Hmm. So he spent two years representing, could have stayed on and easily won a second term if he'd wanted to. Um, he was representing over 100,000 people in the 15th largest city in the country, and he won by 16 votes. And so, there's I mean, a Democrat vote, so it's eight people. I mean, imagine that. It wasn't as funny as you thought it was going to be. That's good. Um, so early for that, Tariq. Yeah. But so I, I think that it doesn't – there are examples like that all over the place. There was a runoff that came down to – a matter of four votes just like three or four cycles ago in a city council race. So your vote literally counts. Um, every single vote literally counts in a race at this level, even in the 15th biggest city in the country. Uh, and if you live in one of the towns around Mecklenburg County, all those races come down to a couple dozen votes. So um, people should really be as enthusiastic to vote in the local races as they are in the state and federal races, because your vote carries that much more weight. And these are people that you can get out there if, if you choose to, and meet on the campaign trail. And if you can email them or call their office and probably actually get a hold of them, these are people that you can know before you go into the ballot box and that you can hold accountable after you elect them. Um, so you really do have that much more power at the local level and people ought to be voting with the same frequency they do in a Biden-Trump presidential race uh, when, when we're running and getting 20% turnout. And what's right? more important than that is like you spend, not you, the, the general, you spend 95% of the time talking about hearing about the presidential national issues and the politics and 5% thinking about the local stuff, when in reality, it's pretty much the opposite of that as it relates to the decisions and the topics that are being addressed and how they affect your daily life. I mean, if if there's a huge big ticket policy shift or something, yeah, that's going to maybe kind of change everyone's life in, in ways, but more inside their minds in a lot of cases versus you get somebody on there that is pro or con roads versus mass transit, or, you know, we're not going to pick up trash anymore. You need to burn it in your front yard. All of a sudden it, 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 it has a lot more impact. That was Larkin's whole strategy. Mark introduced that policy last night. <laughs> it was good stuff. I love it. So shameless YP plug, but you know, Justin's wife, Kiara was the YP board chair. I, th I guess it's been four, four years ago, but I love Justin and Kiara both. Um, I'm wondering if you guys can expound on that a little bit and Tarek, it's sort of where you stopped, but what are some of the things that are, that are, uh, you would say majorly impactful in terms of what's on the ballot. And I think we might talk about bonds uh, a little bit later in the conversation, but I think that for younger voters, I think this pandemic uh, really might have been the first time that they've seen uh, what I would say is relatively clear separation in terms of who gets control from a federal or a state or a local level. You guys want to expound on that really briefly? You started that with the uh, yard trash burning conversation. But. Yeah, lo locally, I'll start, Larkin. You always start. I'll start. Is that okay? <laughs> Democrats, dude. See, entitlement. Um, so uh, I think... Um, I think I think nationally we all know kind of what what's at stake depending on what your your perception is. I think the the two probably flying under the radar are the state and local races. And from a local perspective here in Charlotte, at least, um, while there are many things to vote for, I think the the kind of the clearest value prop or or stake that's that's in play is two uh, two years ago two years ago we lost all Republicans on the county commission. So it became a one party ruled 
body. So while you can argue, you know, how much does a couple in a super minority of Republicans add, I think we've seen some things where a dialogue didn't occur. So I think that one is probably more of a theoretical, like we're not going to have a majority of Republicans ever again in Charlotte local. However, is it good to have a few peppered in there for the balance of debate that occurs previous prior to voting or not? I think probably the main thing is the state though. And the state uh, 10 years ago was the first time that it shifted from Demo Democrat to Republican control. And before that it had been a hundred years or more, right? In Democrat control. So um, now though, as it relates to what's happening, I mean, th there are, there are scenarios out there where the Senate can be recaptured or the House or, you know, ver a variety of things. And while it, it, it's some might view it as unlikely, I mean, we're one wave away that no one's anticipating um, to, to doing that and control of the state in a Dillon rule state, which essentially means the state lets us exist and operate pretty much, you know, uh, at, at their desire. Um, it's it's fundamental. It's critical. And there's nothing more important in my opinion, going on right now across North Carolina and everything, than the rural urban divide and how um, we have to, you know, we, we many times think, oh, well, we're, we're Charlotte and, you know, we're the engine of the economy here and all this stuff. And we just don't put ourselves much like, you know, Republicans at times get accused by Democrats of you think about people and how they're feeling. We as a city, as an urban environment, don't put ourselves in the shoes of, of the more rural areas. And when you think of North Carolina as a hundred counties, I mean, you know, that's a huge, huge chunk of, of folks that are going and dealing with much different, but just as important problems that we kind of don't always take a lot of time to think about. I think the only people that are probably paid less attention to than your city and county elected officials are your state um, legislature. And it's just, it's just as or more important, the things that they vote on on a day-to-day -day basis might not acutely impact you in the way what Tark and I vote on impacts you. But large, a large portion of what we're even able to do or not do at a local level is dictated by the state government. And while, you know, Tim Moore is the speaker of the house or Jeff Jackson with his huge social media following um, might attract a lot of attention I would challenge even the, the highly educated voters on this call to name more than a couple of the 17 members of our Mecklenburg delegation to Raleigh. Um, but it's, it's a really important, and, and a lot of them oftentimes end up not even having to uh, run with opposition for, to keep their seat, uh, which is, is kind of wild to consider. So I, I would say that that's a, a place where people need to pay more attention. I agree with Tarek that there is, there's not only a, a better dialogue when you've got different viewpoints. I think there is a false sense to some degree that if you have nine Democrats on a board that they all think the exact same thing. Because I can tell you of the nine Democrats we had to have out of 11 council members, there's a, a pretty wide variety of Democratic viewpoints within that group of Democrats. Um, but I do think there's also value in the fact that in last night's a perfect example, we passed a safe Charlotte plan that both works towards reimagining the police also works towards addressing uh, the community health crisis that we're dealing with, which is violent crime. Um, I think, and we passed it unanimously, which was awesome, but I think the fact that Tark and his, his Republican colleague, Ed Driggs, voted for it, and Braxton Winston, you know, the, the activist on council voted for it, I think probably gives people some pause that might be quick to criticize it because they're on one side of the issue or the other, and they think, well, if, if you're on the far left of that issue and you look and you go, well, if Braxton Winston supported that, maybe there's something to it and I should take a 
harder look at it. If you're on the far right of that issue and you say Tark and Ed supported it, so maybe there's more to this than I assumed and I should take a strong another look at it. I think it, it builds credibility in the work or creates credibility in the work that we do uh, because we do frequently find consensus on stuff like this. And so it's, it's difficult if you've got any board that's all one party, partly because a big section of our community will write off anything they do yeah. as they'll assume it's blindly partisan, even if it wasn't. And then they just kind of disengage. They feel like, well, my voice isn't at that table, so I'm not even going to pay attention or I'm going to assume everything they're doing is wrong. Um, I think, you know, having two Republicans on the city council doesn't necessarily shift us from being a progressive council. But when we do find that common ground, it, it lends credibility to that work to the community at large. They like having a, a token like us around. We're like, see, we have a we have our Republicans over there in the corner. Uh, but I do want to add one thing. I said it last night, but it bears repeating, especially to a group of young professionals like yourselves. I forgot to mention uh, I'm a part of the group that founded this group before we spun it into the chamber and the business alliance. So you can refer to me as a founding father or whatever. I, I don't care. Um, but um, as your founding father, I do need to note that uh, Larkin um, and his leadership as chair of the uh, community safety committee and, and things like that. You know, we, we talked about that unanimous vote. I mean, there is nothing, almost nothing. It's up there at the top as hard as a conversation, yet alone, let alone a, a policy decision and a vote on public safety, on police accountability on that balance right now. And this guy, I mean, he's just, I hate giving him credit, uh, but it's due, unfortunately. He shepherded that through um, and, and, you know, was able to get us to that point. The work is clearly not done, but to get that unique cast of characters to all support what is pretty comprehensive and sweeping reform, um, but balances kind of both sides is exactly what we need. And I, I have, I've always liked him kind of like in a hangout and have some drinks kind of way. But I think I've seen this new side of him where I'm like, if I didn't realize that the caliber of leadership you had inside of you, um, and uh, we're just gonna let that out and let it shine, Larkin. You're so sweet. Let it shine. Friendly things happening early in the morning. I guess it's the afternoon now. Getting uncomfortable. Look how big his his head is gigantic. Though. Look how huge. Those are all those compliments you keep putting in it. Yeah, that's right. I'm gonna I'm gonna build on that a little bit, and I think Ben uh, sent this message in the chat. But what are some of the differences? I think this uh, conversation that you were just a part of. What are some of the differences between government decisions at the local versus the state level in terms of who controls what? And and I think you can build off of the bill that you're you know talking about just passed locally yesterday. Well, the state ultimately is the is the body with the overriding authority. I mean, anything that we do, um, by and large, they could, should they want to or feel compelled to kind of come down and, and undo it. Um, Let me give you an example not, of that, just that people don't realize like how significant it is. They, if they decided to, now there, these are many considered nuclear options, but they could come and say, Charlotte no longer has at-large rep, uh, voting representatives and we're just gonna do districts. Yeah, I mean, they can let we operate because they have given us the authority to operate. If you think of the city council as having 30 plus boards and commissions where we say you community relations committee can have a citizens review board that can review things from the police department that get escalated or whatever. Like we can take that away on any given Monday night. We can we can add to it. That's the exact same setup. That's the difference between Dylan and home rule. Joe, Joe just made a point in the chat. They could actually, if they wanted to, and this would be really far-fetched, I think, but they could say there is no more Charlotte City Council. 
Um, and, and the best example of anybody who's lived here for more than a couple of years was House Bill 2. That was basically the state saying, no, city of Charlotte, you don't have the right to do what you just did. And not only are we undoing it, we're going to do some other stuff on top of that. Uh, I think one of the places where people need to really hone in on, even if they don't do it proactively, at least as you find an issue that you're really passionate about, dig into what, at what level of government that issue is handled. Because one of the things that, that frustrates us as city council members or our friend Mark Jarrell as a county commissioner or really anybody at any level of elected office is people inevitably think you do things you don't do. And so people come to us all the time and say, well, the park in my neighborhood, well, the city doesn't do parks, the county does, or they want to come to us with mental health uh, or public health things. And, and that's not us, particularly during COVID-19, we've heard a lot of that. And that's a county function. And they undoubtedly are going to the county and are mad about some rezoning or mad about a police or fire issue that's the city. So it's really important, particularly if you if you plan to lobby on an issue or, or take up a cause and try to move the ball on some policy initiative to do the little bit of homework it takes to figure out exactly where that policy lives, who's got the authority to make those sort of decisions or make those changes. Because that's maybe the, the most common thing we see is people come in and just, if they, you know, they just guess and they, and they often guess wrong. And then you're in the wrong room asking the wrong person to do something they don't have the authority to do. Yeah, that's a good segue. And Tarek, I'll probably let you follow up with this question, but um, where do you do the homework? Because I think in an, in an overly, what I would say, uh, polarizing world where right now, uh, Tarek, you sort of led with this, but starting with a news source on one side or the other, you, you may or may not be getting agenda fact or fiction uh, rather than maybe actual fact. Uh, is there somewhere that you guys would go or recommend that we go, I don't know, maybe a podcast uh, to, to learn some things about local politics or politics at every level? Well, you've got to start on social media. I mean, that's where all the truth is, obviously. <laughs> you start there, you, you build up, you go to QAnon, you do stuff like that. Um, but don't shake your head, Larkin. I, so, I, to, People might not know whether you're kidding. That's We've talked about this for years, man. My humor is for the 1% of people who get it. And for the rest of you, I'm sorry. I'm just, sorry. Just like Republican policies, just for the 1%. <laughs> oh, now we're talking. See, didn't you follow the rules? Brad laid out these rules very clearly, Larkin. Um, I, I'm going to use an alpha male example, but I think it, it works. Um, it's, it's, this stuff is like fantasy football, right? Where for the, hopefully 1% of you will follow this. Um, where if you, if you've never watched football and you've never, and you've never played, let alone played fantasy football and the individual stuff, and you try to get in in a season, it's going to be challenging. It's not going to be impossible. But you're just going to be overloaded with information. The, there's the city council, the county commission, the school board stuff. I mean, that's like, that's three teams and there's, you know, over, over 30 that we have to deal with. So then you've got state and all of these things. So it's one of those things where you've got to start. You've got to pick some areas you're passionate about and find information there. And then season over season, you'll get to know the topics You'll get to know the, the information sources you trust, but more importantly, you'll get to see the players, the people that are there and you kind of know what they're about and you build an opinion on their track record as you build up. Because I mean, for I'll speak for Larkin and I, we've got nearly two decades of Charlotte politics that we've been involved in civics under our belt, where when somebody calls out somebody's name, it, it's because you know we were, we were following or we were friends with them or they came up after us or something like that. And that, so- it, it can feel overwhelming at times and, and it's, that's okay. Don't feel, don't give up on it. 
the, the secret is stick with it because every year you'll learn a couple, a couple new areas and things and people, and then you'll move on to the next thing and you'll be following those things. And before you know it, you'll have built it all up. The earlier you start, obviously the better. Um, but if I was going to pick a couple of things, clearly our podcast, while you can tell, like it's, you know, we, we say things that probably alienate people a lot um, just because that's who we are as humans. Um, we've, we've really strived over the last three years, nearly once a week until all the COVID stuff hit and we got depressed um, to, uh, to have a, 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 a episode after every meeting where we literally picked from that week, here's all the, the things that are important enough to talk about or that we did. And then because we're on opposite sides of the aisle, we, we debated a little bit. So you get a flavor of where it is. So the, the problem, whether you go to Fox News or NBC or CNN or whatever is, in a lot of cases, you don't feel like you're, you feel like you're hearing one side and you feel like you're being positioned. And I think a lot of people have lost trust in it. So we've really worked to say local issues, the things that are in our wheelhouse and having a bipartisan debate where we can vehemently disagree. And at times we get a little, a little out there and have to be kind of reeled back in by our, by our listeners. Uh, but, um, but it's something where you can listen to and hopefully get both sides of an argument where we disagree and make up your own mind. And I just put the links in the chat for uh, our podcast, R&D and the QC, the Apple um, link, the non-Apple link, and then also to the Facebook page we have for it, if anybody's interested in checking it out. And Alexis Gordon shared in the chat, too, for folks who want to get involved, the city's got a really good stable of opportunities to do that. And the Civic Leadership Academy is the link that, that Alexis just put in the, uh, in the chat. And that's a great way to sign up. And that's kind of like a civics boot camp. Um, I'd also highly recommend the League of Women Voters, which is a nonpartisan organization, does Civics 101. Uh, when I first, 12 or so years ago, uh, told my friend Tanya Jameson, who ended up being my campaign manager all those years later, when I told her I wanted to run for office, she said the first thing I needed to do was Civics 101. And it was a great um, kind of primer on all this stuff. But we also have 30 plus boards and commissions. Tark referenced the Community Relations Committee earlier, which he served on before he was on council. But we've got everything from that to a tree commission to historic landmarks commission and planning commission, everything in between. Those are ones where citizens can apply on, on the city website and serve in a focus area that is an advisory role to the city. Uh, and that's where Tark and I both got our start in terms of city of Charlotte politics was in those advisory roles uh, where you really can learn a lot about the inner workings of the government, but also sort of hone in on a subject matter that is of particular interest to you. So I highly recommend any or all of those as a entry point if, if this is the a path that you want to go down. You see how nicely we play off each other here? We've been doing the podcast for years. We know how to play back and forth. We finish each other's sandwiches. Sandwiches, for sure. Yeah. So on that note, and you and you sort of just hinted at this, Larkin, but how do you recommend people getting involved and I think to answer that question, why don't you start um, maybe in a little more particular uh, how you guys got involved? I mean, obviously there's an internal decision that you made that you wanted to be involved in a public setting, but what were the steps you took after making that decision to decide that you were going to run for city council? I mean, the first thing, and we've seen examples of this on the, on the good side and the bad side, if you win a seat on the Charlotte City Council, you damn well better be prepared to serve. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at, and Tarek and I maybe both took the long path and you don't necessarily have to 
to take that long a path to get there, but serving Unless on you're a loser, board, and then you, you have to, there's no other choice. What's that? <laughs> Unless you're a loser and then you have to take the long path. Oh, well, um, <laughs> Tark's referencing a decade ago, he, he ran and, and was not successful. So he, he uh, dusted off his, his bruises and, and got back on the horse. But I think there's, you know, there's ways, whether it's through being involved in the community, through nonprofits, through advisory boards, through, um, you know, the Democrat or the Republican party apparatus, if whatever your interests are, whatever your causes are that you want to, to work on and make a difference in, you know, I think any of those can be a logical entry point to civic service. Um, but really it's just knowing the city and in whatever way you, you come to know the city, I think that you are, a, you are better prepared to be a capable public servant. And we've seen um, in certain instances where people sort of parachute in and, and almost accidentally win an election. And, we, and I don't just, I'm not just talking about city council. I mean, at, at all levels of government and, and really aren't prepared and don't understand the subject matter well enough to be successful. And, you know, you still get to be an elected official, but at the end of the day, you ought to be more concerned with what are you actually, what change are you actually able to affect from that seat. Um, and there are people who are able to do a lot more than others. And so I think, you know, if you're involved in the young professionals of the business alliance, you're someone who's already engaged. But I think it's finding that cause. And frankly, I think another important thing in talk, talking about understanding what the city does versus the county versus the state versus the school board or whoever else, whatever your really strong issues are that you care the most about and you know the most about, run for that office. Because we've also seen people who care about one thing and run for an office that does something entirely different. Uh, and they're disappointed and the people they serve with are disappointed. So uh, run for the office where you can actually move the ball on the issue that you are super passionate about because it, this is not worth doing if you can't get in there and feel like you're actually making some change on something you care about. Uh, it's not it's not that fun. It doesn't pay well. Um, you have to find the value in this job through the things that you're able to accomplish. Uh, so they ought to be things you're already passionate about. Yeah, and I, I think if you're if you're at a point where you're charting your own path or you're in the middle of it. Um, I think there are similarities with Larkin and I's two decade kind of journey here in Charlotte and there are differences. Similarities, we're, we both had a passion for it. I think Larkin is one of the guy, kind of guys who, this dude, for, if you can't tell, he like pre-pass and scripts out everything. He, he's the kind of guy, like he's, a, I joke that he's like a 96 year old kind of like, uh, um, uh, yeah, what, what is that time period after the roaring twenties, Larkin, uh, where, Depression era. The, he's a 96 year old depression era man captured in like a 37, 38 year old body. Um, he goes to events like the night before, like your grandfather would to make sure he knows the path to get there and where to park and how to get in. He scopes his stuff out. And it, that's a great skill. I, I've never had that skill, but he sees paths and he'll make pivots and things like that. That's something you can do. If you want to if you want to say, all right, well, how would I build up to that? You could go big bang and go all in at once. You can go through the boards and commissions and the training and things like that. I have always been kind of a squint my eyes, look off into there and just kind of run and do stuff and see what I liked and see what moved to the next thing. So as I got into Charlotte, got with several different groups, actually it was engaged Charlotte that we first started a small group of us that then became, I think, 
a, a YP group that then we spun into the chamber that became the alliance that ultimately was here. But that was one of my first experiences that introduced me to a group of people that then filtered me in. And then in parallel, I was getting to know folks like Pat McCrory, John Lasseter, um, Edwin Peacock, folks that were serving uh, on city council. City council was the only body I ever had any interest in. I looked at the school board. I looked at the county commission, the general assembly. I was just like, ugh, like who would want to go do those things? Because something like there are people who want to serve and be elected. And there are people who like want to do a specific thing. I was always a specific thing guy. Like I loved the financial kind of hardware angle of the city. And it was more like a business operation, which is what I, what I wanted to be involved in. I love the economic development, the workforce pieces of it. Um, things like that. So, so I took the path of community relations committee, business advisory committee, and uh, the privatization and competition advisory committee. So I served on those. I helped my friends in their campaigns, learned the ropes of all of that, ran in district one of all districts in, in 2007 against probably district one's greatest representative, Patsy Kinsey, uh, in the history of district one. Um, that's, an, that's an inside baseball joke right there. That I don't all know. of my jokes are inside baseball. Um, I, I got beaten because Republicans don't win in District 1. They didn't then. They certainly don't now. Um, so then uh, two years later, I was like, all right, I'll run at large. I ran at large. All the polls, remember those things we started with that we all trust. They all had me after I won in a primary with people with the name Georgia Belk and things like that. Beat came into the Republican primary in four slots. I was in the polls set to be the fourth member because we elect four at large, four Republicans and four Democrats uh, run. And that was the year after post Obama wave that kind of hit, knocked me right out of there. So I was done. As Larkin said, I dusted off my bruises because we all know that's how bruises work. And um, gotcha there, dude. And, uh, and then I just said, screw it. I'm focusing on, on my private sector career, my family. I, it was too much. And I think if you get into this at a certain point and you take some L's, you know what I mean? Taking those L's, um, it, it can become so much like, well, I'm in a process after the last seven months where I've taken enough L's where I don't, I've learned to not make decisions in the heat of battle. But it's also something like if I had to make a decision right now, it'd be a tough decision to make because you've got to recover mentally, emotionally, physically as your family from these times. That's how I felt after 09. So I focused on the private sector. I, I was able to kind of grow and evolve there. I started some of my own companies and was able to exit them. And then the timing was right to come back um, both with my nonprofit, but also run again. And that's kind of one of the things you can prescript a path or you can kind of wing it and go with, with where the opportunities arise and where your passions arise, or you can do a mixture of both. Um, but the point is, don't ever force something like if it's not right, don't force it because you're like having that on my resume or having that as a title would be sexy because you'll end up regretting it. You definitely will. It's got to be something you're passionate about. There's a big difference between wanting the title and wanting the job. Um, and you can definitely get there by taking some L's or you can wait until you're actually ready to do the job and you can uh, just win your first time out. That's the other the, path. The, the, the shininess of the title wears off in about four weeks tops. <laughs> then you've got, the rest of the two years to go. No, I love it. So I, I'm curious because this dialogue or dialogue like this, I think in today's world, for some reason seems to not be on the upward trend, sort of on the downward trend. But I mean, Tarek, you just suggested that I think philosophically Larkin and yourself approach situations in different ways. Obviously one of you is a Republican, one of you is a Democrat. How did the podcast start? Because I think a lot of times uh, if we call it two sides of the fence, 
sometimes that fence is an electric fence. Um, how did you guys bridge that gap? Before Tark gives the origin story of the podcast, the reason that you don't see much of this is because Tark and I both catch, as do other folks that we know that, that work across the aisle, catch a, a load of hell uh, for being friends and working with people in the other party. And so, um, I mean, you couldn't, I, neither... Tarek nor I could come out and endorse somebody from the other party, even if we really believed in them. Tell them about the awards we're up for right now for the, in the polls, man. That, that's the best description ever. Tark, Tark and I are Queen City Nerve, the weekly alternative newspaper that replaced Creative Loafing. Alternative. Best, yeah, that's what that's kind of publication. The best podcast for. award that Tark and I are finalists for and a worst politician award that Tark and I are both individually finalists for. So they hate us as individuals, but they love us together as a, as a podcast. But it, Part of it is that it's become such a team sport that it's not cool to be moderate or to work across the aisle. Um, and that if you, it, it hurts me in my own party that Tark and I are friends. And it hurts Tark and his party that he and I are friends. And frankly, neither of us care, thankfully, but, um, but that's what makes it tough. It's, it's so, the, the electric fence is not one that's necessarily put up by the electeds but it's put up by the electorate or the parties and it, it says you're not supposed to work with those guys. You're not supposed to let them, you know, get a win. Um, and then punishes you for, for trying to break down that fence. Yeah, man, people suck. They're overrated. <laughs> um, but uh, the podcast origin story was I, I was into podcasting kind of before the election. I had another one that I was running uh, and I, I really wanted to, um, I really wanted to, to do, something like that here. And then I looked across the board and didn't like anyone. And then I saw Larkin and I was like, maybe I could like that guy. He'll do. Um, no, but I, I, I came to him and I was like, what do you think about doing a, a, a podcast? And we were just getting, we had just gotten to know each other. Only we didn't know each other before all this funny enough. Like we had run in circles where we probably crossed paths for almost two decades, but um, we never really hung out or got to know each other. So we did a little bit in the election cycle, fun tidbit. Um, he pinged me and said, during the cycle, hey, I'd like to meet, just meeting with folks, catch up. He was coming over to my house to meet me, whole time thought the guy was a Republican running against the Democrat. <laughs> and then I was talking to my campaign manager at the time, and I was like, yeah, this guy Larkin's coming over. He's like, oh, Democrat? I was like, he's a Democrat? Oh, so I had to change my whole mindset, you know, put away the valuables, all that stuff. And um, and then, uh, but we hit it off, and and then we, I just came to him and was like, what do you think? And it, it's actually been a really good marriage because um, – while I do all the actual really hard work of editing and setting it up, you know, all the stuff that is unsexy and no one knows about Larkin actually tries to pick up, yeah. he tries to pick up the, the slack by, um, by, you know, he does things like scheduling guests or promoting things at times or, or really structuring the conversation and, and things of that nature. So it's really been something that we're super pleased with. And, you know, last time I checked, which I haven't even in a while um, we, you know, we, we had over, over 70,000 listeners that have, have touched the podcast in one form or another over these last three years. Um, and that's, I mean, to me, that's like, you know, we this isn't the most glamorous thing in the world. So to have that kind of touch point into people so that, that we can have a more in-depth conversation that isn't today's sound bites or, you know, to Twitter posts that relay the information is very important to us. Yeah. I love that. Well, hopefully, I mean, look, I'm enjoying uh, immensely. I'm enjoying the dialogue. So I think you'll probably garner a few more listeners from this conversation. So appreciate you being on. 
Um, I, I want to switch to sort of the last piece of our of our umbrella that I mentioned earlier, but why voting matters. And this one's going to be, I don't want to say a little bit tough for our audience, but um, I think nine, something like 94% of everyone said that they feel like their vote does matter. <laughs> so I'm, try, I'm trying to figure out, one, how do we reach the 6% or, or engage in dialogue about the 6% that say their vote don't matters. But two, it's about engaging the people who aren't at events like this. Who, who we think may feel like their vote doesn't matter. But in, in, in your opinion, and maybe we'll start with you, Tarek, um, what are some of the topics that might be most relevant uh, to maybe the demographic on this call in, our, in the current election? And, and I'd say namely local, um, but relative to our audience today. So what are, what are some things going on? And Larkin just said it, Mr. 704 here. What are some things going on in our neck of the woods that we think might be relevant to, to maybe discuss with the group on the call? Well, I mean, I, well, first of all, I'd assume that, well, you can't assume that because everyone answers polls and says they vote, but how many actually vote is, is, is a question. So let, let me not make that assumption. I mean, on the, on the plus side of things, I think everyone voting is critical right now and not for all the same reasons of like one candidate at president is going to change the world forever. And the other isn't like, I got to be honest with you. It's, it's, it's a team sport right now where everyone's attacking each other. And to think that one of them is going to meaningfully do something different than the other on say coronavirus, like that's just a story in my opinion that the media has weaved together. This is largely out of our control as it relates to the impacts that are going to happen and the things that are happening might, they might tweak around the edges. But to me, that's a narrative that has, and I'm only sharing my opinion, little impact on which one of them ends up winning and huge impact on further putting people in their camps to hate each other and to throw stones. However, on the other side, locally, the thing no one's paying attention to is it is massively impactful as it relates to people that are on the ballot. And I'll just speak in general terms, but right now, and I'm looking at the, the 704 shop right there, small businesses are fucked. And I, I can only say that that drastically for that reason, it, they, there are over 10,000 small businesses in Charlotte that have 25 employees or less. It is estimated that over 20% of them will never reopen their doors from this time, right? And whether you are in, on one side of this debate, which feels that we've gone overboard with shutting down our state and shutting down our city and freaking people out so that they cannot shop with those folks, or you're on the other side of that debate and you think the health and safety risks are too high, we should be doing more. The bottom line is this is where we are. Doesn't matter in the reality. And even if we shut it down and went one way or the other, public perception and, and, and the, the public confidence to go back into the 704 shop the, the itself is still gonna linger for months, if not years from this point. So that is a drastic shift. And the problem is, and this goes to the downside, there's many other examples from affordable housing to transportation to public safety and police accountability. I mean, you name it, it's there, but I'll stick with the small business one because right now, and this is, the, this is, uh, this is an unpopular opinion, but I'm full of them and I've basically sabotaged my political career this year anyway, so it doesn't matter. The reality is that most people that come in and vote I'm opposed to people coming in and vote that don't do their homework. 
because so often they're like, yeah, I know which president I'm voting for. And they're like, oh, there's 47 other options. Well, I'll click R or D or I'll click which name I like, or someone will hand me a piece of paper as I'm heading in and I'll vote on that. Like, I would prefer they just not vote. And I'm sure that is the most unpopular opinion in the world. But the fact of the matter is you might have two people there that you're voting between that have a letter next to their name or were on a flyer that does not tell you on the most critical issue inside your city today, how are you going to do nothing for small business or retool them? and help the 704 shop continue away from maybe a brick and mortar they were heading on in January and February into more of an e-commerce and, and a retool themselves model, but more importantly for them, because they know they're already good at that, then how do you draw attention to those options to the consumer demographic that are out there? And that person could have an R or a D next to your name, and you've done no research, yet you are going to drown out the vote of someone who did. So I'm sure that's an unpopular vote. And by no means do I mean voter suppression, which particularly impacts minority communities and things of that nature. What I mean is an uneducated uh, vote, an uneducated turnout of which they're not paying attention and doing their homework. And I mean, I'm sorry, I just, I'm gonna speak the truth of it. I kind of like, man, you know what? I don't really care unless we also put the emphasis on training people. And if two parties are the only people in charge of training people and, and what it is, they're playing team sports and we're never going to get out of this death spiral. Tarek wandered so far, of course, I don't even remember what the question what was. What the question but, again? What happened blacked out there? Um, but I'll just say, you know, my fear is that regardless of whether you're cheering for Biden or Trump, half of the country, whenever we figure out who wins next week, is going to think mission accomplished and half half the country is going to want to just disengage and neither of those things are, are the right thing to do i mean i think there's so much work to be done there's so many so many important races at so many levels um i know we're going to talk about i don't know if joe or, or brad or somebody's going to talk about the bonds before we close out there's so many important things on the ballot that aren't the presidential race uh, there's so many important things that will be on the ballot next year and and so much work that can be done at a local level that really needs to be done, whether Joe Biden or Donald Trump is president. And so, you know, I hope that people don't get so worked up over this, that they ignore all the other ways they can have an impact and all the other things that they get to have a voice in that are important. Uh, and yet, I think that's what happens for a lot of voters in this country. And it's why you see turnout every four years spike the way that you do, and then crater again, as we go back into local elections next year. So I, I hope people will take whatever you know, whatever they're passionate about, whether it's right, left, or, or a nonpartisan issue, um, and use that as a force for good in our local community, because uh, you can have an impact, and it doesn't matter who the president is, uh, it's not going to stop you from making a difference. On, on but I, I, let me give you just one call to action, action on that, and this is a personal rule I've lived by, right? Everyone should get out and vote. We want to activate the vote. However, the rule I live by is if I didn't do my homework on a candidate, if I don't know one thing about them that they're going to do over the other person, I simply leave that part of the ballot blank. And that way, what I'm, I'm not, uh, what I'm doing is I'm not falling into a partisan trap. I've never actually told anybody out loud that, that I do that. Something I've always done in every election I've ever voted in. But it, the reason why is I'm giving deference to those who have done the research on those folks. I'm making their votes count more in the homework there because I don't want to play team party sports if I if it, if the whole reason is I didn't do, go do my homework but again it goes back to the point which is Larkin and I have been at this kind of fantasy football season wide for two decades now so there's few people that we don't know 
and have an experience. And, but that wasn't always the case. And I always made a practice and I still do to this day. I won't vote in a race on a ballot that I didn't do some level of diligence on. I just put in the chat, uh, vote411.org is a website that is nonpartisan and it's the best one I've found to research candidates you might not understand or you might not know much about or uh, ballot initiatives that you might not have the information on. I'd also encourage, and I'll put it in the chat too, um, voteyesforbonds.com is the site that's got all of the information on uh, the three bonds that you'll find on your ballot if you are a Charlotte voter this year. Um, and, and those are critically important too. So definitely, and it's a long, long ballot too. So you've got to be, you got to have some stick to to, uh, I think it's like nine pages or something crazy. So work your way through. There's, there's important stuff all the way at the end. I tossed a couple of links in there. You can learn from. No one wants the local GOP website, Tar. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's great. I, I do think now's probably a good time. You mentioned the bonds and I think Joe, uh, Bose has joined us with the Alliance and I think Joe, the Alliance as a, um, an entity in Charlotte usually takes a stance on bonds, but I think we were going to give you a chance maybe for five minutes or so uh, to walk through the bonds that are on the ballot uh, and our, and our stance on them as, as an organization. Uh, yeah. Good, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I think before I jump into the bonds and, and I'm going to in just a second, uh, I want to express um, how unique this conversation is uh, today. <laughs> Um, this is not normal. Um, Larkin and Tark and I have gone round and round. We're, we're friends. We've worked together on a lot of issues. Uh, they're anomalies in the political landscape. They truly are. Um, I'm not trying to suck up to them. I work with people at all levels of government um, and their thoughtful approach to policy issues, um, to considering um, anything is, is really important. Um, whether they have an R or a D next to their name, um, I can't express how um, just unique it is to have somebody who's willing to listen. Um, they may not always agree with you, but they're willing to listen and have a conversation and a dialogue about that issue. And so um, it's, it's really unique. So we're, we're very fortunate in this community to have two people who are willing to uh, roll up their sleeves, work together, um, and try to, try to accomplish things in a bipartisan way. Um, and as I think Larkin was saying, um, it doesn't matter who the president is going to be. You can make, um, you can move the needle. You can make an impact on a policy measure, regardless of who the president is. So um, speaking of making an impact, um, the, the bonds that are going to be on the ballot, it's going to be the last three items on your ballot. If you're a city of Charlotte voter, if you live in one of the towns in Mecklenburg County uh, or outside of uh, Mecklenburg County, this will not appear on your ballot, but if you do live within the city limits of Charlotte, uh, there will be three bond questions. Um, and we are encouraging you to vote yes on all of them for, um, for a number of reasons. But over the last decade, the city has put nearly a billion dollars or maybe just a touch over a billion dollars in bond measures on the ballot, uh, all of which have been approved uh, by Charlotte voters. Um, and this year it's 197 million dollars to do uh, neighborhood improvements, uh, improvements uh, in our transportation system, and another commitment by the city of $50 million on affordable housing, which brings a uh, two-year total up to $100 million if these bonds are passed. Um, it's a strong statement by the city um, and the city council to put bonds on a ballot 
um, in, a, in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, we're seeing governments kind of across the board pull back in a lot of areas, um, whether it's the state or, or what have you. And uh, it's really critical that we continue to invest in these uncertain times in the things that matter most, which is going to help us be, um, continue to be a shining city uh, on a hill um, and, and be competitive for investment over the long term. So um, go to the very end of your ballot um, and vote yes on all three. There's going to be three different questions, again, on neighborhoods, transportation and housing. Um, vote yes on all of them and happy to answer any questions that y'all may have uh, on the bonds themselves. If not, I, I do want to underscore something quickly that Larkin and Tark have not mentioned. Uh, total turnout in North Carolina as of five o'clock this morning is nearly 47%. Uh, 3.4 million ballots had been cast as of 5 a.m. this morning uh, in, in North Carolina. Um, a lot of people have gotten out and voted. Um, if you haven't done so, I would encourage you to do it. You've got until uh, Saturday to vote early uh, or at your normal polling place on election day. So with that, Brad, I'll yield back to you unless there's questions um, in the chat. No, that's great. Uh, thank you for that. And I should probably clarify, and I meant to say it to begin with, just not to misconstrue things, but that, that is the Charlotte Regional Business Alliance that's um, encouraging a yes vote on the bonds. I'm certainly not. And, and I know they both have an opinion. I'm not saying that for, for Tarek or for Larkin or the YP group. Just, just I, I'm saying it for me. I'm encouraging people to vote yes for the bonds I, as well. I, I understood. Um, I'd encourage you to go read them yourself and see what, what conclusion you come to. I, I mean, I'm, I support it. I voted it, it forward, but got to do your homework. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Tarek would have left it blank if he didn't do his homework. So uh, the website that Larkin uh, put up is a great resource, um, and it highlights uh, all the bond measures and, and allows you to do your homework. Um, and if you want to do further homework, there's even more information that's contained within, I believe, is the city budget. Uh, that these were these were passed in. Also, Michalina just made a good point. I think as a question she knew the answer to, but asked it for the sake of the group. Um, you can register and vote at the same time, but only during early voting. So if you need to register or you need to update your registration this year before you vote, you have to early vote. You cannot do that on election day. And I'll, I'll tell you again, anecdotally, I went to the Bojangles Coliseum, but I've heard this for all the different spots that people can vote at. The safety protocols are really strong. Um, I, I have a, a good feeling that you will feel safe and comfortable uh, no matter where you go to vote. It was really easy to get in and out other than the first day. There have not been long lines, um, except that those high traffic kind of in the on the way to work, on the way home and lunch hours. But even then, it's been fairly, fairly quick. So, so Larkin, we can go there in the airport with masks, but we, we can't go to music venues. Is that right? And things like that. I'm just trying to make sure I remember. The it's, rules you guys have laid a out different. for us. But uh, we can have that debate when we record the podcast in about 20 minutes. Got it. <laughs> well, so, so thank you. But thanks, Joe, for weighing in. And thank you both. I think we're um, about to round this out and enter the sort of Q&A portion, although we've kind of started that already. But one of the things that we were going to ask everybody that's on the on the line uh, to weigh in on, and, and we'll call it an informal poll question, uh, and you can just put it in the direct chat, but what are the things that turn you off the most about politics? And that's how we're going to kick off our Q&A session. That about politics part's an important caveat. Yeah. About yeah, well, Larkin. Fair. Fair enough. I think True. it's his face. So uh, 
if everyone wanted to take a 30 seconds and maybe try and not write a five paragraph essay, but a bullet point or two, uh, we'll use that to kick off some Q and A. <clears throat> Chris and Joe, I would expect nothing less for the two of you to be at the top of the list with questions. <laughs> to Chris's low blows point, I think voters need to negatively reinforce candidates who go negative in their campaigns. Uh, Tark and I are in a, a group text with a couple of buddies and this came up in a local race just yesterday uh, that someone just consistently is going negative and the, and the opponent is frustrated because they say, I want to respond, but that's not the type of person I want to be or the type of candidate I want to be. Uh, and we encourage them to stay the course because if, if voters consistently punished people for running negative campaigns, people would stop running negative campaigns. But that's the problem. They don't work. They, they, well, it, they it, can. It, they do work. I mean, is, is oh. the, the point I'm trying to make. But I think there are three things. There are little things no one's paying attention to that get under the skin of one versus another. There's pointing out something about the other person that is relevant. And there's pointing out something about the other person that is not relevant. Only that third one is, is in, my, in my definition, going negative in a way that's not fair. Sometimes you've got to go on the offensive to point things out about somebody else that you're running against uh, or it won't get highlighted. Yeah, I'm... I would just always, it, it's always a red flag to me if the bulk of your campaign is centered around why I shouldn't vote for your opponent. Sure. Um, if you can't tell me why I should vote for you, there's probably a reason. And, and so I'm always skeptical of people who make it more about what someone else has done wrong or what's, what's bad about someone else, but they don't really have a whole lot to say about why they'd be better. That's great. And I'm voters gonna... should reinforce that in, in any way they see fit. By, say, by even calling a spade a spade on somebody that they're planning on supporting or that they agree with or they like, say, look, you're better than this. Tell me why I should vote for you. Since you both have um, no issue talking about the tough topics, I'm going to sort of bridge a gap between this event and a lot of what our CAYP board has talked about this whole year. Um, and I'm trying to, a lot of people have put questions. I'm trying to find who put it in here. Oh, it was Joe who said closed-mindedness. And, and I'm curious just to get your take. Um, I would argue, and I'm going way off script here, uh, that our CAYP board has hosted several conversations on racial equity and diversity and inclusion. And there has been an awful lot of people reevaluating how closed-minded they may have been previously. Do you think that that's something that's entering the political spectrum or are we still e even further apart than we were? And the reason I say that, and again, I'll ask everybody to share some grace as this dialogue, uh, but there's been some pretty legitimate conversations we've had with people in the community who said, I thought I knew and I didn't know. It, is there any of that you think entering the political arena or is that uh, a part of the race conversation that the country's been a part of for the last six months? I think that oftentimes people evolving and growing and changing their minds as they, as they get more information on a topic is billed as flip-flopping. And I think that's problematic too. I think we should all aspire to continuously be learning, to continuously be improving. Um, and yet, and again, this happens in both directions, when you dredge up stuff from 30 or 40 years ago and say, oh, well, back in 1976, somebody said this, 
well, shit, I hope their viewpoints have changed since 1976. If they haven't, that's a problem. Why are so they please, still in politics that long? That's, that's also a <laughs> yeah, fair question. Yeah. But I think that you've got to give people, not to say that people don't flip-flop, but I think that, especially over a long period of time, if your views aren't evolving and changing as you get more information, that's more of a problem to me than, than trying to say someone who believes something 20 years ago should believe the exact same thing today. And if they don't, then calling them a flip-flopper. Look, I, I, I unfortunately know nothing that I can do other than speak truth. So I've got to speak it again in this case. Narkin's like, please don't, please don't. It's recorded. Um, but I agree that it's okay. It's okay to change positions and evolve. I've seen that a lot. I, I, I see this from a different perspective. I'm surrounded by a lot of people and many of which have R next to their name as well, that have been fairly enlightened on this point. I, I, I think that there's a general consensus of people we're surrounded by in our own echo, echo chambers and where we are, of people who are on this right page. I would say a majority of people are generally on the, on the right page where we need to go, but problematically, this has been weaponized. People are being used as as pawns in order for, for other groups to achieve certain ends, which has been terrible for the progress that's being made in this. In fact, so much that it's always bothered me about people who really focus on diversity and equity and even upward mobility and things that touch on race as well, which we know those are underlying issues that run around and freaking broadcast it all day. I do this, oh my God, I've been working on this for years. This has been a core of everything I'm about because I lived my own upward mobility story. I lived my own, not the same, but parallel elements of diversity challenges growing up in a small rural town. And I wanted to pay it forward with the programming I've made, the things I've built. But I, I almost felt like it cheapened it with being out on the campaign trail talking about it because people try to leverage that and use it. So I, I spoke with an Braxton Winston, I, great personal friend, and I had a debate in front of Generation Nation, incredibly smart group of people. We heard from one of them last night in council, and they went around, they said all these things, and everyone's head is like violently nodding and necks are snapping. And I just kind of raised my hand and say, look, here's the problem. You all have gotten incredibly good at diagnosing the problem statement. You're able to say it there, but what what is it other than us all violently agreeing that's the thing that you want to do other than saying and pointing at people saying that person's not with us? Like, what's the us? What do you want to do? Because redlining's a thing. We have had systemic injustices and systemic racism that are weaved throughout the foundation of this entire country as we know it. Doesn't mean the country's a throwaway. It's still the greatest experiment in the history of humankind. But the point is we're using this as political weaponizing back and forth. And I don't see the people saying, here's what we need to go forward. Because if someone said, all right, we're gonna do reparations in cash. We need to have a debate on what the downside implications and upside are, are, are is there, is there something due back to those who were absolutely hurt for so long at the, at the expense and benefit and gain of others? Sure. But it is so, it's such a slippery slope that we would do it again for another several generations as an unintended consequence of what we're doing. But unfortunately, no one ever talks about much beyond the problem statement in this front. And that's what drives me crazy. So me, I've decided I'll talk about it some, but I spend most of my time doing the work that actually changes the upward mobility trajectory of folks, changes the diversity and equity measurements and outcomes 
of initiatives that we work on until everyone else catches up with what we need to be debating and talking about. On a somewhat different track, I, I just, one other thing that, and I'm reading some stuff in the chat and uh, Jasmine said only being vocal and outspoken during election time. I don't, I don't know exactly whether you meant like taking a position or, or talking about the work that you're doing. I'd say one other thing that's really kind of a fine line to walk as an elected official, and I haven't, I haven't mastered this or gotten comfortable with where I want to be on the spectrum of this, but um, if you, if you only do the work so you can talk about it, it, it both A, looks disingenuous and B, I would actually argue, and this is a longer conversation than I could kind of flesh out right now, but I would actually argue it makes you less effective over time in that position. Uh, if you do the work and you don't talk about it, people assume you're not doing anything and it becomes problematic come election time. So I don't know how we as a, as a society strike that balance or, or what we want to ask of our term limits. It's called term limits. Real simple. Term limits, term limits could be helpful for a lot of things, but I still think people, people partly want to take credit for work, whether they did it or not, oftentimes. Um, but you also kind of have to, to a degree to get reelected and be able to keep doing that work. And so I, I'll just throw that out there as something for people to think about. What do you want? Um, what do you, what do you want from your elected officials on that? And I don't know that any of us have, have mastered that balance. That's great. I, I'm trying to look through this chat and see if there's any other questions and thank you both. There's nothing better than two politicians having to respond to questions exclusively about what turns people off to politics. So I appreciate your openness to that dialogue. Oh, trust me, there's nothing that we don't hate worse than you. <laughs> I can tell yeah, you that right now fine. for sure. I'll hear you about watch, it. You watch brutal. whatever it is you hate, we live it. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, been, it's been almost unbearable. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm just trying to like, anyone who's thinking about going into it right now, I'm not saying this so you all like shed a tear for us. We signed up for it, but think long and hard and look what you're going through because literally people will attack you with without mercy just because um, it, it fills some little tiny objective or strategy for them. And they don't care about what you've been working on. They don't care about what you've been building. They don't care about anything. They just care about their own selfish value prop and it's, it's disheartening to a point where I'm not sure we're going to survive on the current path without a major change, like something just major shift, because it's just, it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Now's not the time to ask Tarek if, if he'd encourage you to run for office. <laughs> but there, you, you can find value in the work. But again, you have, to, you have to find that value in the accomplishments, not in the praise. Well, let, let me... Um... I tend to be an eternal optimist, but maybe that's because I'm not in politics. Um, I was so too. I'm gonna, that was nice. I remember those days. Yeah, I, I'm going to spin this in sort of an optimistic fashion because I've been in Charlotte for just about seven years, and I can tell you the city is palpably different now than it was when I moved here. And, and Larkin, I think you mentioned the city might be the 15th largest, or at one point in time was. I think it's the 13th. I think we just passed San Francisco from a from a people moving here perspective. So I, I think Charlotte really has been, uh, if you ask the broader audience in the United States, uh, in an upward trajectory. And you did talk earlier about a bill that was universally passed. Um, you want to just briefly touch on some optimism that you may have relative to what the future of Charlotte might could look like. And maybe Tarek, I'll start with you from a fintech perspective. 
I think Charlotte represents, frankly, the cream of the, of the crop in terms of future potential. Do you want to talk a little bit about the optimism that we should have or could have as a city and a region in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's it's such a deep question. And we spend literally months and months tearing this apart item by item to try to figure it out. Um, but I would say that what excites me most about it is the fact that we have this amazing asset that sits under, under us, which has been the banks. And we've looked at kind of these first three industrial revolutions that they've occurred. And then in the last six, seven, eight decades, um, as it relates to, you know, seeing how folks like, you know, Hugh McCall and the, the folks who have built the banking to be, you know, what we know it to be right now. Now we are now pivoting to something that's not totally different, trying to diversify out of this, but it's complementary in that the, the, the same forces that are disrupting the banks globally right now are the ones that we're recruiting in here, the fintech companies. And all of our banks, and this is the work we've, we've set out to build upon over the last five years with the fintech hub, all of our banks have said, while you know, we have the competitive juices of people across the street, that we see and compete against every single day, we've decided to try to play together in a sandbox to, to combat that to get, so we as a region are more unique than any other. So they've come together in this joint nonprofit venture where we, among other things, welcome in the FinTech disruptors to give them game-changing deals and operate in the ecosystem and recruit the businesses and provide the jobs beyond the links I shared with you a little bit ago of having workforce-based programs that don't just give people that move here an opportunity to work, but also look for people who are growing up here and missing out on the opportunity because of the lack of the social equity and door, door openings that are there to train them, to give them the, the career advancement that's necessary. So when I look at that, paired with the fact that we are at least contemplating what a big city needs to look like from an infrastructure perspective, 5G, autonomous vehicles. I mean, I'm not at all pleased with where we are in that compared to where we should be. But when I look at where other cities that are our peer groups are, it gives me hope that at least we're floating the conversation. But, you know, if we stick on this path of only talking about fixed rail and eight to $12 billion is what we're going to spend to essentially do all this, that's great. But you have to ask the questions like, are these things about transit and moving people and solving our congestion? Or are they about the amazing economic development we've seen in South Bend with the blue line? Because that's two different propositions. So I love where we're headed. And we've got all the right puzzle pieces on the table, but the decisions we make in the next couple of years are going to define this city in a way that, I mean, we've all been saying that for years, but I really believe this fourth industrial revolution is going to be one that we can't even put our thumb on and, 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 and understand, let alone exactly plan for. So we have to plan nimbly for the future and that's where we're going to be made or broken. On the transit piece, it's both and it's it's transportation and it's economic development. But I generally I'm optimistic because regardless of what list or what metric you look at, we are one of the cities in the country where people want to be. They want to live here. They want to bring their companies here. Um, it's for a multitude of reasons. But um, I think we will continue to be one of those cities that is a magnet for young talent, for startup companies, 
um, for industry, emerging industries like fintech. And that's something that no matter, you know, what else you do, it, it kind of has to, that kind of has to cultivate organically. You can't make your city, um, if your city is not that sort of a magnet, I don't think you can just throw money at it and turn it into one. I think we have sort of a natural confluence of, of factors that make us that. I think we've capitalized on it and we'll continue to capitalize on it. Um, this is a place people want to be, and I think for good reason. So I'm, I'm generally optimistic about the trajectory of, of where we're headed. And, um, and it's just a cool time to be engaged. So I hope that, you know, beyond obviously everybody's engagement here with the YPs, I hope people will find a way to, to grow deeper roots in this community and uh, continue to get involved, continue to get engaged and give back. I love it. Thanks, Larkin. And I was going to say, we're, we're sort of up against a window here, but maybe a 15 seconds last soundbite from each of you. Thank you so much for this. But um, Larkin, Tarek, anything you want to add outside of letting people to go vote, maybe educated vote, Tarek, but uh, any clip from the podcast or anything you want to share as a closing thought? Please like, subscribe, share with your friends. And uh, we thank you for listening to this episode of R&D in the QC. <laughs> there you go. Yes. And follow us on everything and like and subscribe it. And thanks. Is that, I, what else did, do I, am I supposed to say? Uh, you got it. You nailed it. That's Mark all you needed. No, look, guys, this was uh, immensely intriguing for me. And, and I really enjoyed the dialogue. I hope that everybody on the call did as well. There were several, uh, I think, relevant links that were shared in the chat. So to the larger group who was on the call, uh, we will share those links with everybody who signed up. Um, so those will be sent out, but really great dialogue. Thank you so much for your time. And we'll uh, look forward to a podcast that I guess you said you're about to record here in like 30 seconds. Uh, but thank you both for coming here and thank you everybody for joining. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thanks guys. Larkin, you got time to play some COD or what?